Are my levels good? You should talk a little bit more so that I can hear We're back. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we prepared especially for them. I'm Duji Taha. I'm Luther. My nipples are out hues. <laughs> I, oh my God, I cannot. What? You were, how long have you been planning that? I just thought of it just now. Uh, dear listener, they are out. And I'm Gabrielle Bates, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, this week we're talking with poet Carl Phillips about syntax, abstracts, and the brassiest of tax. Oh, oh. my God. Our signature drink for this episode is an Italian margarita in a silver-rimmed buffalo horn goblet, specifically, which is made with tequila, amaretto, lemon, and lime over ice. Carl Phillips is the author of over 15 books of poetry, most recently Pale Colors in a Tall Field from FSG. He's won the Kingsley Tough Poetry Award, finalist for the National Book Award, and currently teaches at Washington University in St. Louis. So, we recorded this eons, and I mean eons, eons, eons ago. October, like, 2020. The you know, deepest, the darkest deepest. depth. Yeah, it's been so, quarantine. so long. And right now, we are currently together, physically, ah! not on Zoom, and we are live and it's fun. So, you know, you're going to hear some slight differences in some audio, you know, the usual podcast stuff, stuff like that. So... You'll actually hear our drinks like clinking and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Listen. That was Gabby's drink clinking <laughs> on her finger. All right. <laughs> Buckle up, y'all. This conversation is going to be a wonderful, wonderful. Unhinged. Unhinged. That's the primary difference. From, uh, yes. Of just generally. Yeah. Last I year. feel like when we recorded this, none of us had really talked to a human being in a long time. We'd been like in our own heads deeply. Things were really weird. And then we were on Zoom with like this icon, Carl Phillips. And we were just like, we unleashed. Yeah, it was. Uh, I remember the first round of questions. We were all just like asking like this essay questions. Yes! It was like super long and layered. And we were all like, wait, let's scale this back. Like, <laughs> why are you asking this? We have like page long questions. <laughs> Um, this question is definitely more of an essay than a question. Yes. But, um. Like not even a comment, an yeah. essay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Moment of silence. Um, wow. It's so good to see you both again. Same. We're in. You're so cute. Your outfits are so good. <gasps> Your outfit is good. We have fresh flowers on the table. We had to actually like think about our outfit. Like I like actually thought about yeah. my outfit because I'm like, you guys are going to see me. Yeah. When we talked to Carl Phillips, I was wearing like an ugly sweater. Right. I looked great. In the dark. <laughs> Luther always Luther looks great. Luther cannot relate. Yeah. <laughs> Unrelatable content for Luther. But it's so cool like to see like our hair is long. Like it's so like cool to see that. It's true. All of our hair has grown it out. It is. It's, it's fun. It's cute. Well. Speaking of grown else out. we should talk about? <laughs> speaking <laughs> of adulthood. Of grown. You know, you know who's an adult? Um... Well, we should we should acknowledge. Yeah, we haven't um, aired an episode in a really long time. And, That's true. Um, Hence our hi, transitions we're live. are awkward. 
we're alive listeners we love you we're sorry um thanks for being patient with us yeah it's been a really difficult year yes. uh for uh many many people for most people um and you know that has not been untrue for us uh so very well said <laughs> we are humans uh, yeah surprise yeah we have we have <laughs> a few <laughs> interviews left that we want to get through um and so over the course of the next couple months you'll hear uh from a few voices that we've loved and really enjoyed talking to um and then you know we'll regroup and recoup and uh redo <laughs> yeah we might do like a season three take two again Ooh, um three who knows part. who knows what we'll do but all i know is that we're not gonna stop oh my god luther you're <laughs> killing me <laughs> um but yeah for now we're back and i'm so excited yay we're excited can't you tell yeah this is a promise too like you're gonna get all the episodes now yes so you heard reload, it here subscribe right <laughs> follow us uh-huh. And next up, Carl Phillips. Carl, would you read your poem, And If I Fall? Yeah. Right now? Right this second. Okay. And If I Fall, the title of which comes from the charlatans, the British band. And if I fall, there's this cathedral in my head I keep making from cricket song and dying but rogue in spirit still bamboo. Not making, I keep imagining it as if that were the same thing as making and as if making might bring it back somehow, the real cathedral. In anger as in desire, it was everything, that cathedral. As if my body itself cathedral. I conduct my body with a cathedral's steadiness. I try to, I cathedral, in desire, in anger. Light enters a cathedral the way persuasion fills a body. Light enters a cathedral the way persuasion fills a body. Thank you for that, Carl. Um, you are a poet who uses a lot of abstractions in your work, which I love because it feels really audacious in light of the advice so many creative writing students receive, which is you know, to use concrete imagery instead of abstract language almost at all costs is sort of how that advice comes across at times. Um, and your your poems certainly contain a lot of concrete imagery as well. So I don't want to suggest that they're wholly cerebral or conceptual in nature, but it seems to me like you're clearly interested in the ways abstract concepts can be powerful and crucial components in poems. Like across all your books, we see abstractions like desire, anger, power, love pop up again and again and again, many times in the same poem, often in the same sentence or phrase. And I was hoping you would talk about the role that you feel abstraction plays in your work as a poet. Sure. Um, I'm also thinking about those teachers who, who advise against using abstraction. I think anyone who suggests avoiding abstraction 
may as well suggest not writing about being human. Um, so that seems stupid advice, but I do know that most teachers advise it. Um, I think all the things you named, love, power, desire, fear, all those things, those are actually core parts of being a human person in a human body that is mortal. And I think if you want to call it great poetry or lasting poetry, the reason it has lasted is because it's wrestling with these conundrums of being a human being that have never changed. Um, you know, you can read all Shakespeare's sonnets about love. That's not the answer. There's, turns out love still presents new problems to each individual and the problems change, you know, from year to year. And so to me, the only thing that is actually worth writing about is these are these big conundrums of being alive. And it includes concrete things, of course, like trees and desks and dogs. But, but I guess I don't feel that I need to, that's not something I need to put a lot of energy into. Like, how can I understand this tree? Um, it's a tree and there's a science to it if I want to understand it. But how can I understand how it is that at 61, I'm still discovering new things about what it means to love another person. That to me is fascinating. And I might've thought that I understood what a relationship, I did understand, I thought, being in a relationship with someone for 18 years. So what does it mean when you decide in your fifties to leave that relationship? And what does it mean that when you should be so confident in your fifties, you're afraid because you're suddenly in new territory again. So, so for me, those abstractions do come up all the time because they're the core parts of being human. And the concreteness is just the context for all this stuff and that I'm very grateful for, which is why like when I use, when I talk about abstractions in poems, I always say to students that it's not that you shouldn't talk about them, but one, first of all, you, you need to really push hard at them instead of just saying justice and acting like I've used a big word. Um, but also that it's best, I think, to balance abstractions in a poem with concrete imagery so that you have something to ground the reader with because it is a lot to throw justice and love and freedom or something um, at somebody. But if you can talk about, about it in terms of something that everyone can hold on to, then I hope it works or it's too late if it doesn't for me. But yeah, it's kind of like when people say, because I've had students say, oh, I, you know, I've heard it's not, you can't really mention love in a poem. And I think, really? You're, you're actually going to close down a big part of what it is to just be a human? Um, that's a lot of subject matter. That also sort of brings to mind, I think, something um, you said in other interviews about like sort of accessibility, like for the reader in particular, thinking about like, you know, the concrete images, like a hook for the reader. Um, mm -hmm. And and I'm wondering maybe if you could say a little bit more about like creating an experience for the reader where like the words and language just sort of wash over them. And like, it's sort of a sense and meaning making that's like sort of, it's like almost not necessary that like those hooks like need to be there or like what, how, how, how far do you want to push maybe in that, in that respect? Well, I mean, I think, I, you know, I, I guess I just, maybe I think there are two forms of reading because I mean, sometimes when I read a poem, like in a book by somebody else, I'm sitting there trying to study it and unlock it in some way and 
really figure out what's this poet getting at. But but other times, and this happened just last night, a, a former student of mine, Aditi Machado, has a new book um, called Emporium. And I love her writing and I was reading it and I, well, the back of the book says it's all about commerce and the economy. And I don't know, it's about a whole bunch of things. And I wasn't getting that at all. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to just read these poems out loud right now in this room by myself and just let that happen. And, and I really, I'm halfway through the book. I love it. Can I say exactly what the book's about? No, I don't think it's about what the back of the book says, but I think it's about something to do with, of all things, silk and the erotic and the relationship of fabric to the body and how it shrouds and hides and can be a weird turn on depending on where the fabric is. So, which is maybe why they didn't want to say it on the back of the book. I don't know. Maybe that seems weird to say, but, but I feel like, yeah, it's, that's a form of getting meaning too. I, I have sometimes described it as like at poetry readings. I always tell people, don't worry about holding on to each poem. Like maybe just let it just cascade. And, you know, you can get the sensation of what it was like to be inside that writer's sensibility for half an hour. And then later, maybe you get the book and you can spend time with it. So to me, both forms of, maybe they're both just two different forms of appreciation. That makes sense. Shifting gears a little bit. Would you I say if it made no sense at all, would you say that is lar malarkey, fi, fi? Yeah, that's exactly what I would say. Is that how they talk in Seattle? I don't know. Yeah. Just yell shame, actually, as people walk by. Oh, okay. Um, uh, shifting gears a little bit, I think, um, you know, when people hear the name Carl Phillips, they often think of syntax. Um, and but you why? <laughs> why? I don't. Sure. I know it, like, plagues you. You're like, why does everyone... <laughs> Because it sounds like it's not a premeditated thing for you. It's not. But Duji, take it away. Yes. Well, I'm curious, you know, that you've said in some interviews and you've written at length, um, you know, about your relationship to syntax being sort of informed by arranging units of information. Um, and I'm thinking of the chapbook, Star Map with Action Figures, um, your first and only chapbook, as well as some of the poems inside that rely on like the stanza graph as a unit. Um, and for listeners, the stanza graph is like a stanza slash paragraph sort of combined um, prose poem-ish in a prosy poem. But I'm thinking in particular of the poem On Triumph, which is like a single clause and also uses stanza graphs to break up that single clause. And so like all of this to say, I know you didn't set out to write the chat book. It just like is the sort of form it ended up in, but I'm wondering what about in rearranging the units of information in this book um, maybe you learned uh, what you were sort of reaching for or what you learned um, from putting together the chapbook. Yeah, I'm thinking about that question. It seems like it has a few prongs to it. Um, I think in terms of sentences first, rather than lines. And so when I write my poems, I in general write them out in what would look like a book, like a page of prose. And then I lineate by reading it out loud sort of breaking where I think I hear pauses or want there to be pauses. And then, then yeah, I don't know. It, it, 
varies, you know, I, why something is a paragraph or why it, or, or a stanza break versus not being. Um, but I don't think of the book as being, I think of it as being, you know, stanza poems. Um, I know that it looks like prose as soon as lines get too long. You're not the first one. There was a reviewer in the New Yorker who wrote in detail about a prose poem of mine. And I didn't feel I could say, you know, that's not a prose poem. And there, you could tell actually, if he looked, if he read closely, he would know, but you know, what are you supposed to do? And plus, you know, I wanted to be reviewed in the New Yorker. So whatever, I'll take it. But as for the chapbook, I think the thing is, I, I just write poem by poem and I don't think in terms of a book. Um, and then one day I get the feeling I'll write something or I'll just think I have a feeling that I'm done here. And I'll look, and usually that's meant that there are like 50 poems. And out of that, I'll like carve out like 30, 32, which to me is a good length for a book for me. Um, and so, and, and, and I start seeing how they coalesce and I think, oh, okay, I see how there's some kind of argument happening. There's a theme, whatever, but I don't start that way. And so with this chat book, I was just writing along just some poems and but it was a strange period about which I can't say too much, but, but a strange period of a summer and where these poems all kind of came together in about two months. And, and then the thing that had catalyzed, had been the catalyst for it all ended. And, and I thought, you know, and I started writing other poems and I thought, oh, I think that these poems were all sort of wrestling with that little episode. So, so I thought, well, you know, fine, I'll just, and I felt like they went together in some way, like a, almost like a little, I don't know, sweet, I guess, of poems. And, and so, yeah. And then I was just having lunch with my partner and I was talking about it and said, Hey, maybe I should, just put these by themselves. They feel to me like they're separate from other things I've been writing. And because I had a book in production and I could have included these in that book. And, and I thought, no, that's closed. And I also feel like I've been writing some new poems, but they aren't these. So that's when I thought, oh, maybe they can be a chat book. Um, but yeah, and my partner was the one who had the idea, oh, never put them, never put these poems in a book, never have them. They're just their own EP. And because he feels like it's kind of cheating when you have an EP, then you include all the EP songs on your album. And I kind of agree with him. So, um, so yeah, that's what it is. Although it can be in a collective poems after I'm dead. That's a lot, but it's not going to be in anything like when I'm alive. Cause collective should mean all the poems. And so then it should include that, but, but yeah. I think I'm really interested in like, sort of units of information and I'm not really sure even I think I'm wrestling with it sort of myself and and maybe mm -hmm. another way into that topic is sort of in hearing your process one thing that it did, it did occur to me as I was reading uh like just reading all of your work is when you're sort of lineating um like how do you think through like how do you decide where to break like often balancing thinking about like if the line is often associated with breath and then you have often a lot of like clauses and sejuras that also sort of modulate like the reader's breath like mm -hmm. what other sort of elements maybe are you thinking about in terms of like manipulating like the reader's experience 
um, outside of breath that mm-hmm. as you're breaking up your sentences? I think the main thing I'm interested in is, is um, momentum. And I want the poem to be a physical, muscular thing. And so I want it to feel like it's moving. And I want it to feel when someone's reading it that they're actually moving through something or being moved through something. And so I try to break at the places that I was instructed never to break lines. Um, but I didn't listen to those people, which is good. Um, so most people break a line at a place that feels like it feels safe. Um, you know, so they'll break a line. They'll have a line like, um, I'm going to the store and that's, that's the, that's the line. Then the next line is to buy some groceries. Okay, fine. And to me, that's just lineated prose. Whereas I'm going to line break the store to line break, buy some line break groceries is already kind of wrenched It kind of makes you have to, the syntax of it, the incomplete syntax of it makes you have to go down to the next page. So I like that because what it does is it triggers impatience. It seems to me in the reader's mind, like I, I want to, and that's frustrating to get to that as a line break. I want to what? So I want to go to, you want to go to what? And, and so it's, it's, it's why I've talked about syntax as being erotic. I think of it as a kind of sexual tease. So you you give them enough to want to know like what's, and what's underneath that? And what's behind that corner or what's in that room? And, you know, you lead them slowly there, but you don't just plunge them in so they see everything. So something like that, you know, I, to be honest, my top experience when I read so many poems is boredom. And, and I'll try to figure out what's going wrong. Like why, you know, what's wrong with this poem? And it's like, there's nothing wrong, wrong. It's just polite. It's just doing what's safe and polite. And this is what I found when I was judging the Yale. And, and it would take forever to find a manuscript that just basically was sort of saying a fuck you to the judge and saying, you know, fuck you. This is how I am. This is who I am. All, all the mess and unfinishedness but that attracts me i think wow who's this person who this person stands out you know it's kind of like if you went into a board meeting and everyone's wearing a suit and tie and then someone's just wearing a speedo i think what's going on with that person you know that's that's different and you know you just would naturally look because you think oh there's everything i expect all the time and then there's this unexpected thing so I try to create things that are unexpected, which is hard to do, you know, when you have been writing for so long now, it's kind of, but I at least try to surprise myself. And, and I hope if that happens, that maybe the reader has some surprise. So in your recent collection, uh, Pale Colors in a Tall Field, there is tension between faith and independence and how they relate to love and intimacy. So there are many moments throughout that exemplify this. And I'm thinking of the line, um, what is faith but to make a gift of yourself and the poem on being asked to be more specific when it comes to longing. I'm also thinking of the line, um, at what point is believing so close to knowing in um, dirt being dirt? And even something simpler in performance, like the line, I'm no one's horse in the poem, since when shall speak of it no more. 
So can you talk a little bit more about your relationship to faith and independence and how the book explores that relationship? Wow, that was a lot, Luther. It was intense. Grad school. <laughs> oh, that seems beyond grad school. Because I'm thinking, hmm, are all those things happening? I bet then they must be because then you pointed to specific poems and I'm like, oh, that's going on. Uh, well, my relationship to faith and independence. I guess when I think of faith, it's not so much like, you know, religious faith necessarily, but trust in something when you can't really understand, you can't know what the outcome will be. And I think this is something I've been interested in forever. Like, I guess it's a form of risk. And so I'm, I'm interested in how, first of all, like what it means, like in that poem whose title I too have, I have trouble saying I'm, I'm being, I'm remembering, I'm being asked to be more specific when it comes to longing, yes. Um, and I guess I think of that gesture at the end of, it seems like it's an act of faith to lie naked and exposed to something that you don't understand. And, and I see that as a very erotic situation as well. But what does it mean to, if that's what faith is, um, that's dangerous, potentially very dangerous. And at the same time, to stay covered up and hidden all the time and not to trust would be not to give yourself a chance to evolve into surprising new spaces. And so I've always had this kind of weird relationship to, well, first it was like fidelity, I guess, in a relationship and what is it to be faithful? And, and yet if you want to stay alive, isn't being faithful preventing you from growing by meeting other people and hooking up with them. But on the other hand, stability is really important um, if you want to stay alive and if you want to even have a relationship. So I don't know. I guess my the simple answer would be my relationship to those things is vexed because I don't, I sort of began, I think, as this poet who I thought I was just talking about things the way everyone else did. I realized when no one would talk to me after readings that I was being scandalous. And, but I think it's one thing to talk about, you know, going around and, and devotion as an erotic act and, and sexual cruising as, as a form of devotion. You can say all those things in your twenties. It's a little strange to say it in your sixties. And because people wonder like, what's going on? And, and also, I have learned that when you get to be in your 60s, you're a little less cavalier about, like I used to think, oh, whatever, if I die, I die. But that was when I was 25. And, and now I think, oh, wow, I could die. Like, or actually I will. And so I, it's like, now you see it in the, the not so far distance. And so, so you kind of want to still stay alive and yet have a life of adventure. Yeah, and just thinking about, uh really about uh, how the book explores these two topics in uh, together. And I'm really curious, uh, you talked about faith a bit. I'm curious about how you see independence working in the book um, and how that kind of shapes um, your idea of faith and how these poems explore both ideas. Yeah, you know, I, I'm. it's interesting because I'm thinking about this. I hadn't really thought about how independence works in the book. and But I see what you mean. 
and I'm wondering if it has to do with how my life is now. Uh, because I used to think that stability in a relationship was about like finding a soulmate or something like that. Um, you know, and being one with somebody. And what I found was that was, well, you can try for that. First of all, I don't know if I even believe in soulmates. And, um, and also what I found was that that can be very suffocating. And so I find myself now for, I don't know, seven, eight years in a relationship with somebody where we're both very independent and I value that. I mean, independent as in we're, we're in the same house even now um, and we live together, but there for hours at a time, we don't see each other. Uh, I will be doing my thing. He's doing his thing, whatever. Um, and I once would have found that problematic. I would have thought, well, why aren't we doing our, like we're here in the same house. We should be like hanging out every hour, touching base and smooching, you know, having tea or something. And I find that, um, I think this happened because after the 18 year relationship, I lived alone for six years and I'd never lived alone as an adult. And that made me really, I, I loved it actually. And, and when the sort of roundabout way my partner moved in, we were drunk in Chicago and he said, I said, you know, I don't get why you live a block away from me and you don't live in the house. And he said, yeah, I don't either. And then the next morning, I, my first thought was, I hope he doesn't remember that conversation. And he woke up and he said, so when do you think I should move in? And I was like, oh, so, so, cause I thought, well, maybe it's fine the way it is, you know, we'll live in our separate spaces. So anyway, but it turns out to be great because we're both kind of, I used to say loners, but he says not to say that because we sound like we're Columbine people. Um, you know, we're introverts. And so, so we don't need all this constant contact. And I kind of, I like it. And I say all that because I wonder if it's spilled into the poems and um, is a different, maybe a slightly different thing from what I've written about in the past about independence, which doesn't have to mean that a relationship isn't very sturdy. And, and in fact, I find that the relationship is maybe it can be st sturdier because no one is saying, Oh, I'm tied down in some ways, which is different from saying it's an open relationship. That's, it is not that, but I mean, independent in the sense of you can have your interests and you can listen to your different music or, you know, it's okay that um, he doesn't read poetry. Um, that's fine. You know, I also don't read, uh, political news and, but I, well, I do, but from Twitter, which I'm not supposed to say, um, he told me I'm not supposed to say that. Um, <clears throat> but that's his fault because he got me onto Twitter. So, you know. I love what you were just saying about independence within a relationship. And, you know, I think about that moment in Rilke's letters to a young poet about you know, two solitudes protecting each other. And that's always felt like a really important part of romantic relationships for me personally. So I think I, I really resonate with that description of the relationship and in thinking about that in conjunction with the poems and how that, that can seep in and that sort of permeability between 
our lives and our art. Like it, it makes perfect sense that those things would seep in. I think so. Can you read another poem for us? Yeah. Um, the poem is to be worn openly at the wrist or at the chest and hidden in your recent collection. Right. Uh, sure. To be worn openly at the wrist or at the chest and hidden. If I believed in a God, he would be a sea God, like the sea in its predictability. Now approach, now recede. Beneath such a God, I would not mind, I think, being the shore. Say of the sea what you will. It's the shore that endures the routine loss, without which what strategies would there be for softening the hollowness that any victory, give it time, comes with? How curb the risk of arrogance with its doomed but not undangerous hound complacency? I made this for you. Put it on. I know it's not going to matter whether the decisions I made were the ones eventually I even meant to make or should have or should have thought maybe more than twice about. What's history anyway, except according to the latest mouth saying so, just what happened? I flourished undramatically to no apparent purpose, like pretty much everyone. The sea dragged the shore. The shore suffered the sea. The end. But you asked me to read it, so I read it. Well, you're silent now, so <laughs> it's like, you're reminding me of when I used to, I, I twice made the mistake of reading at a Christian school. Christian school. I didn't know it was Christian, or I did in one case, and they said, it's okay, though, they're really open-minded. And I read... And after every poem, they just look like oh, Satan. And and then there was this reception with like Kool-Aid because alcohol wasn't allowed on campus. And I walked over, I tried to walk over to some, some students, you know, and they backed away from me. They backed away. And and the person who had invited me said, you know, I'm really sorry. I, I think that they are a little upset by the reading. And it's like, okay. And like, and they said, we can go back to your hotel now. And it's like, okay. So, so I always wonder when people don't speak after I read a poem, it's like, what happened? But, but as my partner says, they're just stunned by your brilliance, Carl. We are. He would, yeah. he would never say that, actually. He, he can't stand how people act around me. Ooh. And then he said, why do they act like this? They act like, like you know, you're Chardé. And it's like, am I not? <laughs> what? Don't, give me my illusions, please. I need all I can get. That's amazing. I think we actually are floored by it. We're just reveling. Um, oh, okay. Uh, to get to a question though, I guess. Um, oh. Thinking about uh, in your Paris Review interview with our season one guest, uh, Rick Barot, you, uh, you said in the interview, poetry is not a box for storing unexamined experience, but a space instead, a field really within which to examine experience and to find that the more we examine it, the more we're surprised or disturbed by what we see, things that won't go away. And then you went on to say, but I understand that it's harder to write that kind of poem, harder to, to read it. So my question for you is, if poetry is hard to write and read, uh, why do we do it? Well, 
I do it because, I mean, I don't want to seem, you know, dramatic, but I guess I see it as a survival technique. Um, it seems to me that I wouldn't know how to live if I, like, I feel fortunate to be able to wrestle with impossible subjects that never can be resolved. I feel fortunate in having an outlet to sort of feel at least as if I've temporarily laid them to rest in the form of a poem. And it feels as if, okay, I've contained in a sense, the demons. And then you start to see a tail slipping out or some horns or something and think, ah, oh, damn, you know, I thought I, I thought I'd shut that one in. And, or you forgot about the 10 demons behind you while you were focusing on the one in front of you. And so I feel, I, I, I feel I write because it's, I, I've, I've described it before as kind of like creating this wedge between myself and the unbearable. And that sounds dramatic to say, what's unbearable about your life, Carl? But I feel like if anyone really thinks and feels and lives deeply, there's a lot that feels unbearable. And even without pandemics and, you know, just stuff. Um, so that's why I write. And I go to the poems of other people where I feel as if they're writing for similar reasons, where it feels as if they, they had to work to get to hammer this, this sentence out, you know, whether it's Emily Dickinson or Robert Hayden or, you know, Baldwin or whoever. And it frustrates me how much poetry is out there that seems to, if not be about not shocking or not disturbed, not disturbing. And I feel as if, well, you know, there's plenty to satisfy us, you know, in a kind of more immediate way, but there are some things that we actually should be disturbed about. And like, I don't want a poem that says the world is all glowy and fine because it's not. So I don't want it to also tell me we're doomed and damned, but, but to sort of say, this is the world and, you know, within it, we can love and we can, you know, commune with other people, but it's also really perilous and frightening. And so I don't know, I guess I think that's why I write and what I look for in poetry. And, and sometimes poetry does seem, I mean, is it Audre Lorde who, is she the one who originally said poetry is not a luxury? Because um, I feel as if a lot of poems do seem like they're stuff that's spun out by rather privileged people who have never had to feel um, compromised um, about their own lives. And, um, and it's not necessarily their fault, but it's just the case. And, but I also feel like no matter, even if you're somebody, I was just talking to Dan Chasen, um, who was saying that he has never actually had to think about how to move as a person through the world because he's a straight white man. And who he said, even though he came from not a very wealthy background or anything, but everyone thought he was like a preppy and, and so he's always just had a kind of charmed life, he says. And, and, and I think, but that's, that's fine. You can have that kind of a life, but, but you still, if you feel deeply enough, you realize that that's what it is and that's not what life is. I, I think he does feel that way. But, but yeah, I think life is, I don't know, why, why just read a poem that, or write a poem that simply says, 
everything's fine or or says here's something that you already knew okay well if i know it why do i need to spend time reading about it but i know that's not for everyone i also think when i said that in the paris review interview about how it's hard to write that kind of poem i think it's hard for people to think that way i i often tell my students that i think there's a kind of curse in being a poet because it means that you can't ever, it seems, just look at something in an ordinary way. I mean, sure, I can, someone once wrote about me that I would be incapable of ordering a taco with having a, without having a metaphysical experience. I do order tacos and I don't think beyond that. So it is possible to do that. But in general, like in the fall, when it's fall, I do tend to think about mortality and time passing. It seems hard not to. But when I talk to my friends who mostly aren't poets, they aren't thinking about that at all. And they're thinking, oh, wow, hockey season's coming up. And I, I wish sometimes that that could be as far as my mind went. And, um, but it isn't that way. So that's why I write the kinds of poems I do, I guess. And yeah, it seems judgmental. I, really, I want to say there's, there's room for all kinds of poems, but we all have our personal likes and dislikes, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I really am drawn to like the relationship between poetry and precarity too, and just like our sort of willingness to uh, acknowledge uh, pre the precarity of life. Um, and my day job is like in politics, and I often am thinking about like um, in political communications in particular, which is sort of um, sanitized of that like like you could die today, right? <laughs> like mm -hmm. like we could fit like we, those are the stakes is that we could die today, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I am really, which is why I'm drawn to poetry. So it's interesting to, yeah, just hear you think through that. Yeah, I would think that, well, I don't know. I get generations confused. Like, are you all like Z? No. What is Z? Younger than us. Oh, Z is like my undergrads. Right, yeah. Okay. No, because I was thinking, well, okay, but you're not millennials either. We are. Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. Really? Oh, I'm with a millennial, but you all seem a lot younger. Um, I, he's an older millennial, though. Yeah. Thir 39. We're on, so. the, we're on the, like, tail end of that group. I see. Because I feel like people in the millennial generation, I would think precarity is something that is very much a part of, you know, it seems so many things that I grew up just assuming were possible. You know, you buy a house, you pay off your student loans, you know, you whatever you do things and and then to see how crappy it's kind of become and um you know it's not a reality for most people to be able to do any of that stuff and unless you want to sell your soul um to certain kinds of jobs and then of course those jobs aren't available anyway for most people so i think that accounts for so much of like the generational divide across like all demographic like everything right every institution every demographic like there's yeah it's too bad because i feel like people i'm sadly a boomer but apparently one of the youngest boomers um but i feel like if more people could just remember what it was like when they were in their 20s and 30s like it's not that hard to me to remember that at all and because even when when i was in my 20s i had no money at all but i still knew that oh but that's okay you know i will get a job and be able to save and that was a reality. And, and now it's like, what? I'm surprised people aren't just on drugs all the time. 
or maybe we are. Who's yes. saying that? <laughs> During uh, this pandemic, you've been doing this incredible weekly show on Instagram Live where oh. you hop on and cook food and joke around a little bit and read really beautiful poems, usually by other people. And you sing a little bit. And it has just been such a delight uh, for me personally. And I really do feel like you are providing sustenance for the resistance in a time when so many of us feel beaten down and anxious all the time. And one of the many things I love about this weekly cooking show, as we're calling it, is how candid and wide ranging and silly you allow yourself to be in it. Mm -hmm. For those who are familiar with your very intellectually sensuous poems who know you as like this Latin scholar and judge of this very prestigious Yale book prize, like to see you singing and like snapping around in your kitchen is just, I don't even know what it is. It's just this beautiful extension of what you argue for and so much of your written work, which is this expansiveness of self and this permission to be who you are, regardless of how that stacks up against how other people think you should be. Mm-hmm. And so thank you for that. Um, and I'm curious to know what you've been getting out of this weekly ritual or what sort of sustenance it's been giving to you, if anything. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I appreciate, I appreciate everything you're saying about the show. Um, you know, I, I guess the main thing I get, I mean, this was just a thing to while away some time. I was just going to do it a few times in March and, and I didn't really think that it was going to turn into like, you know, a regular thing. Uh, but what got me to keep doing it was because people would say things like what you were just saying, Gabby, about, you know, they felt like some joy had been brought into their lives or they'd been distracted from the fear of lockdown and all of that. And, and often I feel as if, what do I actually do that helps anybody? You know, I, I feel like, especially when it comes to my job, my actual job, I feel like how, how important is it, Carl, for you to be teaching poetry to graduate students? Um, you know, how, as opposed to when I taught high school Latin. It wasn't the Latin part. It was that I felt like just being in the classroom, I was mentoring and, and being a model for these people who were becoming adults. And so it seemed like you, 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 and you could feel, you could see like watching the same student from freshman year to senior year become an adult and learn from you. And you, you'd feel like, okay, they, that's important. But I sometimes wonder what the value is of anything I've done here at the university and so something like the show feels, feels tangible in a sense. It feels as if, oh, you literally make people happy. Um, you literally get people write in and say, I made the recipe you, you shared, or I did a variation, or um, yesterday I was doing the show and somebody in the comments said, oh, this is my weekly mental therapy. I just sit here and you remember that there's this in my life. And it's like, wow, okay. So that's, so that's part of it. But I feel like, cause I'll be honest, most weeks I think, okay, this is the final week. It's, it's gone on long enough. And then, and then I think, oh, okay, one more time, you know, you can do it. But also one of the things that has been strange to me is 
what you see on the show is actually how I normally am. I mean, you know this from Breadloaf. I mean, I, I actually am this person. And so I, it disturbs me a little to realize how many people out there apparently think I'm this cerebral creature who only listens to Beethoven and Bach and does waltzes if I dance at all. And, and I feel like, why do people think this? Like, or the, one of the big things is they say, oh, you wear t-shirts. And I think, what the, what? I mean, what else would I wear? You know, it's like in, in class, I don't wear a t-shirt, but that's because it's class. So, so it's been a kind of revelation to me, like, oh, so this is how people perceive you. And I've also realized, because they tell me, I did not fully understand how many people are apparently afraid of me. And it's a little dismaying, but they'll write in and say, you know, I was really afraid of you, um, but this show has changed my mind. I realized you're a really nice person. And it's like, well, thanks, I guess. But, you know, and, but then I also want to say, but how do you know the show is real? You know, that's a, maybe that's a performance, but so I don't know. It's been interesting to realize, though, you know, there's this, I, I truly never think that people even know who I am or think about me at all. I, I truly never do. And I'm really, um, I, I'm always sort of thrown when they, they say something about me and like, or they, about my poems. And, but then to realize that not only do they know of me, but they've actually just determined a personality based on these poems. And that's, I mean, sure, the poems in some ways are the most accurate reflection of who I am inside. And, but, but there's also lots of joy each day. I kind of make a point of it. And, um, you know, but there's also just regular stuff. I think some people are amazed like that I have a kitchen. Like, because, you know, the same people who like it used to be, this was more when I was a high school teacher, the students would see me in the grocery store. It's like, oh, Mr. Phillips, you're in the grocery store. What, what's that in your basket? A pumpkin? What are you going to do with it? I'm like, I think I'm going to carve a pumpkin, you know, because I have a house and a life, you know, whatever. And so I think they're just kind of amazed, like, oh, um, Luther, you'll remember that I used to have this annual party for all the MFA students. And often people would say to me, Oh, so who who cooks for you? Like like they like a regular on a regular basis, like there's some daily cook in the house. And I think, well, there is, but it's me. Um, or who cleans, you know, who who can you recommend your gardener? It's like I'm the one who goes out there and rakes these leaves. I am the one who cleans the house. And so anyway, it's been a, it's been interesting, but it's a lot of fun. And it makes me feel like I'm glad if it makes people realize that I'm more well-rounded than just writing these moody poems. <laughs> so there's something you do quite often in your recent collection that I haven't seen you really do as much in past books. And that's starting poems with an M dash, which to me represent a sort of response to something. And at the same time, sort of an aside, um, as if we, the reader, should know what came before, even though we're only given the title, which can be seen as enough information to understand the aside or response. And this got me thinking about um, defiance in the book and how defiance is usually a response to something. And the book even ends on, right, the poem Defiance, um, exclaiming um, to believe in ritual in the name of hope 
there lies disaster. And then even to end with a lovely image of lilies opening on a pond, let's just know that defiance is eventually what opens the speaker up to understanding the world around them. And so this got me thinking even further about how poems often act as responses and acts of defiance and wondered if you ever thought about your poems as an act of defiance. Yes, I do. Um, plus, I just want to say, I'm glad you found something that I'm doing different because I always think, oh, wow, it's more further adventures of Carl. You know, it's like nothing new. But uh, yeah, defiance is important to me. And I guess I do think of poems as acts of defiance because first of all, as soon as you put language down, it, you've defied silence, um, you know, in the way that utterance, mere utterance is a form of resistance. Um, it's a refusal to remain quiet. And so I think just the act of writing is defiance, but, but I also, I don't know, the way I see my poems is that they're always questioning the general assumption about a given subject. So, like there's this set of ideas of what a relationship is, but I write about relationships that don't fit into that. Or there's an assumption about how a line, how a poem should begin. And I think, why can't it begin with an M dash or an indented line? Why not? Um, and so, and I will admit, sometimes I do things just to defy, just to see what will happen um, in life, but also on the page. And in fact, that poem that, you mentioned Luther, the, the poem called Defiance. I remember thinking that it was a, I, I don't have a lot of moments where I step back and think, whoa, Carl, you just did something kind of crazy. But that movement that happens right after saying the thing about ritual, believing that is disaster, then there's this break and it just starts to say, and turn to him. And like, like this poem that comes out of nowhere, but what the what that second part does is it is a ritual first of all the ritual of taking another's hand in your own hand and then i see the opening of the lilies as a kind of seasonal ritual and and so it's that second part that last part of the poem is defying what was just said and you know the poem just said don't go for rituals and then we end with this ritual and and i thought yeah it's like saying fuck you to yourself and I, I think I love that. I love that. I remember when I, I, the poem ended up being in the Boston Review and Tim Donnelly said, you can't do that. What you do at the end of that poem, you can't do it, but you're doing it. And he said, so we're going to take the poem. And I was like, I know what you mean. I think it's wrong. Like if I feel like if I saw this in a student's poem, I'd say, I don't even get how you, how you made that leap. And, but it changed me as a teacher too. Cause I thought, you know, maybe before you say you don't get something, you should just say, maybe they're just taking a wild leap and let's see where it goes. I don't know. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's how I feel about poems as defiance and how I think defiance works in the book. Um, one way is once I got the poems and I thought, okay, how they work together. At first I thought they didn't belong together because there's, I don't know, it seems like there's a bunch of poems I realize there's pronoun divisions. There are poems in the we, in the first person plural. There are some I poems, and then there are a lot of he, she, it poems, and, and they. And I decided to arrange them so that from poem to poem, 
that point of view would constantly shift. Um, and I thought it's either going to be a mess because it doesn't cohere or it's a deliberate fracturing of pronomial expectation, if you want to call it that. And, and I kind of liked it. And I thought, and don't give the book sections. It was going to be section. I thought, no, let it all just sort of keep flowing in. And if people try to find any continuous thread, they can't find one. And um, so it was for me, a kind of way of defying if people were thinking it, I, as you may know, Luther, I have issues with the project book and, you know, when it's really deliberate in some ways. And, and I thought, I, I don't want there to be a clean trajectory here. I want there to be, I want it to be messy and, and not well-behaved. So, so yeah, so that's how defiance, I think, factored into how I structured the book. Not that I ever think people, I don't usually think people see any of that stuff. You know, who knows? I mean, you did, but usually it seems like people, you take all this care and then like you section, you put the poems in a certain order and then people say, oh, I don't read the poems in order anyway. I just open up wherever and think, okay, all my work has been wasted on this person. But that's also why each poem has to be good because I want it to be like if someone just flips open randomly, I want them to say, oh, wow, okay, that's, that's great. Instead of like most books where you slog through the middle 30 poems, say, oh my God, and then finally some, oh, that's right, the good ones will be at the end again. Remember some at the start, now they're at the end. But, you know, when I was judging the Yale, the first thing I would do is I would ignore the opening and ending poems and I would open right to the middle, say, okay, I'm gonna read three poems in a row in the middle of the book and see how I feel. And if I was not excited, it went into the rejection pile. I didn't even know, read the opening. And I thought, cause I know how everyone does that. But you know, people who say, oh, you wanna get the judge's attention, you know, get them from the start. And I think this judge feels like every poem better be damn good, every poem. So. I don't want to stumble upon mediocrity in the middle. It's like, that's an insult. You shouldn't, you, the book's not ready if you had to hide the mediocre poems. So, but people do it all the time. He said, silencing the room. Does silence make you uncomfortable? No, in fact, I'm trying to write an essay on silence. Um, maybe that, maybe it does make me uncomfortable because I haven't written the essay. Um, no, I, silence is my governing mode and throughout the day, like there's no music playing. The only sound I'm hearing in this room is, you know, the wind and the trees outside. But in a situation like this, or like in a classroom, you know, when I say something, then the whole group is silent. I do have a moment of thinking, oh, maybe that was the wrong thing to say. Or like in a classroom, I'll say something and I think, oh, maybe they didn't understand, but they're afraid to say they don't understand. So, yeah. And usually I'm right. Wednesday was class and there was one student who was silent the whole time. And, and I wasn't quite sure. I, I thought, I have a feeling that she's, she's confused. And I, but I asked people if they were confused, but I didn't want to call her out. And but then this morning I got this email from her saying, I just want you to know I was silent because I realized that I totally did the assignment wrong 
but then throughout the course of the class, I came to realize what my mistake was. So now I'm clear, but just so you know, it's not like I don't like you or that I think the class is boring or stupid or anything. Of course, you started listening to all these things. I thought, wait a minute. I never even thought you thought that, but you know, okay. But so sometimes silence is good, but other times I don't know what to make of it. Isn't that like, that was just a random comment you made and I just went off. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> would you um would you read your poem Defiance for us, and that can be a nice like cap to this first section of yes. the interview. Yes, I um, <laughs> I also have noticed a pattern here that when Carl gets a little crazy, they say, "Oh, have him read another poem." Um, <laughs> he's going off the rails. Bring him back. Oh, tell him to read something. He'll settle down. <laughs> We had the order planned out in advance, just so you know. I know. I That's just, not happening. <laughs> you know, like it's. I've noticed it's like all the students think I'm. They think I'm calm and collected, and they're all like insecure. But I'm also super insecure the whole time, thinking, "Oh, they hate me." So it's like this horrible battle where it's like, you know, I have to pretend I'm I'm collected. Whatever. Okay. Defiance. Some say the point of war is to make the need for tenderness more clear. Some say that's an effect of war, the way beauty can be. Homer's Iliad, for example, or many centuries later, how the horse's head to protect it in combat would be fitted with a chaffron, a strip of steel, sometimes mixed with copper, all of it hammer worked, parts detailed in gold. I love you as I've always loved you, one man says, meaning it to another. That doesn't make love true. This only needs to be troubling if we want it to be. Our minds are as the days are, dark or bright, says Homer. The words like coral bells in a pot made to look like the head of an ancient god, a sea god, moss for seaweed across the old god's face. To believe in ritual in the name of hope, there lies disaster. And turned to him and took his hand, the scarred one. I could feel the scars, little crowns, mass coronation. For by then, all the lilies on the pond had opened. Slight rhyme between coronation and opened. Slight, almost as if gesturing towards the end of an English sonnet, grazing along as if it were a slant sonnet, akin to a slant rhyme. Will anyone get that? Will the critics see it? Do we need them to? No. No, we thrive within the bubble of our own understanding of what our mystical, magical sensations might be. Thank you so much, Carl, for hanging out with us at our most unhinged early mid-pandemic state. We mid. spent <laughs> way Pre-emergent. too much time in our own heads and hadn't talked to anyone except our houseplants in a very long time. You are an actual living legend, and we are so lucky you gave us some of your time back in October 2020. I hope he remembers me. Yeah, you think he remembers us? Probably not. Oh, he knows me. Well, 
That's true. That's true. You were a student. I was a student, though. Yeah. That's different. (laughs) We also must thank, for the first time ever, Jack Straw Cultural Center, who is taking care of our audio editing for this episode. Yay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, Lord. This is our first time getting outside help of any kind for this podcast. And wow, what a blessing. A life changer. A life changer, Jack Straw. Thank you, J.S as I like to call them. Oh. And dearest listeners, oh, even though we went radio silent for a minute and kind of lost our minds in this episode, we hope you'll forgive us and leave us a five-star rating anyway. We also hope you'll follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send us some questions to answer. Our email address is thepoetsalonpod at gmail. Dot com. Thank you. We love you. Bye. 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 Bye.